Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at SupChina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from New York City, where I've spent the better part of the last week, and I gotta say, it's uh, kind of nice to be traveling again. I always introduce the show, as I just did, uh, talking about how China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty is one of the topics that we cover on SubChina, and today that is our topic on Seneca. I'm delighted to be joined today by Bill Bacalis, a development economist who recently returned to the U.S. and has led a long and storied career working mostly in China and Mongolia. Uh, most recently, he served as lead economist for the UN resident coordinator in China. In June, Bill published a fascinating report assessing China's poverty eradication effort, uh, which is something we've talked about a bit on this show in the past with guests like Gao Qin at Columbia and uh, Matthew Chitwood, who talked about his work on poverty alleviation in Yunnan for his Fulbright. Uh, Bill's report, which was done for Swiss Development and Cooperation, a Swiss government agency, is titled Reflections on Poverty Reduction in China and looks at poverty alleviation efforts historically and challenges many of the assumptions and nostrums we hear, both in the uncritical admiration uh, of China's achievements we hear in some quarters and in the blithe dismissal of China's claims that we hear in others. It's a really great read that should be, I think, required for anyone interested in contemporary China. And Bill is here to chat with me about the report. Bill Bacalis, welcome to Seneca. Thank you so much, Kaiser. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, I'm I'm so gr- glad that we could have you because uh, you're somebody who I've admired for a very long time. We only really know each other through social media and <laughs> things like that. But uh, it's great to finally uh, talk to you, if not face-to-face, at least on video. So uh, this is your first time in, on Seneca. So maybe we could start off with a bit of personal background about your career. So give us the, the quick and dirty version of your, your China career to date. Well, I majored in Chinese studies as an undergraduate in college. Uh, that was driven by my interest in classical Chinese literature and philosophy. I just fell in love with it. And uh, that included two years of studies in Taiwan, learning the language, studying the classical literature. I went back, I I graduated, had no idea what I was going to do. China had not opened up yet, Uh, but then China did. And actually, I started my first career was in China tourism where in 1979, I I led a tour group to China and then ended up spending the next several years, the next five years, in one form or other, involved in leading, lecturing on cruise boats to and organizing tour programs to China. So I got to travel all over the country at a time when not many foreigners had yet visited many of these places that I went to. And I got a very interesting view of China and life in China at that time. So I did that for a few years and then decided I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life doing tourism as a career. I went back to school and ended up studying economics at Harvard with some very good China experts 
especially Dwight Perkins, mm-hmm. still still wonderful, and still in touch with Dwight. And then, to my surprise, when everything in my career had been pointing me towards work in China, I got an, an opportunity to go visit and work in Mongolia for a short time. And I ended up spending almost the whole 1990s in Mongolia. Wow. Totally unexpectedly, and it was an incredible experience. But it was taking me away from China. We can discuss Mongolia some other time. Maybe. Yeah. And then, yeah, I went from there to Ukraine, which had a lot in common with Mongolia, sort of post-Soviet reform situation. Then joined the, the Asian Development Bank in Manila for three years. But this time, by then, I was just dying to get back to China. Mm. I spent so much time learning. And in 2006... I then moved to Beijing on behalf of the UN and have spent pretty much the whole 15 years since then until June of this year in Beijing, working for various UN agencies and doing consulting on most on China's social and economic development issues. Bill, it always augurs well for me uh, when a report on something you know this big starts off with some broad historical context. What do you think that people should know about the significance of poverty relief in China's imperial past or in the Republican period? And, and how has that shaped uh, the Chinese Communist Party's priorities? I'm very struck, and I read various analyses by current observers of China, of how the party is using poverty alleviation as a source of legitimacy and so on. And when people make that observation, they tend to be very short-term focused. They'd say, well, you know, this is the Chinese government is eager to prove its legitimacy. It's every government likes to, so they trumpet this or they trumpet that. But I think a lot of that analysis misses just how deeply the claim, even if I don't accept it, as I'm sure we'll discuss, that China has eradicated poverty, uh, how deeply that claim resonates with Chinese history. I mean, the fact is, China has thousands of years, 3,000 or more years of recorded history. And it is absolutely correct that the effort to eliminate or, or to control, not eliminate, to control poverty, to reduce it, especially hunger and famine, which was its most important manifestation throughout history, has been a theme throughout Chinese history. And to stand up now, as Xi Jinping did, and say, a history of China is the history of a struggle against hunger and against poverty, and now we have won that battle I mean, that does resonate so deeply. And he quoted Chu Yuan, the, you know, warring states parrot, and he quoted Du Fu, and he quoted Sun Yat-sen, and he, and he, he that's absolutely right to do that. So, I, again, I, I will discuss why I, I don't think the claim that China has eradicated poverty is, is correct, but no matter what, the tremendous progress that has been made uh, certainly should be seen in the perspective of uh, those thousands of years of history. And uh, as I point out in the paper, it's a history that continued right up till 1949. In that Absolutely. There were many bad famines in the 19th century. There were terrible famines and during the Republican era as well. 
So, Bill, you describe the Chinese government as having a static view of poverty. Uh, that is, at one point, the government identified a group of poor people, and then at another point in time, those same individuals were relabeled as having escaped poverty. In your mind, why is this view of poverty incorrect? Global experience with poverty alleviation has found repeatedly in country after country, time after time, that solving the poverty problem is not simply a matter of, of dealing with the people who are poor at any one moment in time, but it's also creating systems, institutions, programs that will prevent other people from, from falling back because poverty is not static, it's dynamic. You don't, you're not poor or not poor. You can't just divide the country. There are people who are near poverty. There are people who think they're doing fine, who encounter some shock, can be a death, illness, loss of employment, a natural disaster, and suddenly are thrown into poverty. This, this is what happens all over the world. And of course, China is no exception from that. So the static issue, came up specifically with the most recent campaign to eradicate poverty, where it was defined in a static way. 2013, the Xi Jinping's campaign, which we'll get to, which will be you know, a major focus. Uh, but it, it's interesting to me that uh, you, know, you took your first trip to China, as you said in your self-introduction, in 1979. Um, that's, you know, really shortly after the, the third plenum of the 11th Party Congress in, in December of 78, which incidentally is used constantly by the Chinese leadership as kind of a baseline whenever it makes claims about poverty alleviation. I should add that it's not just the Chinese Communist Party leadership that does this. Uh, a lot of us do. A lot of us implicitly look at 78 uh, as a baseline. And I mean, I do it constantly myself. Th there are, though, a lot of implicit assumptions in choosing this as a baseline. And uh, maybe we should unpack some of those. I think your report does a really great job in spelling them out. It says a lot about how the post-Mao leadership, up to and including Xi Jinping, thinks about the Mao years, right? Yes, yeah, that's absolutely right. The nine, When I first visited China in 1979, here's what I saw. I saw a country that clearly was a poor country. There was no question of that. And we went to the, we went to rural areas and we, we visited people's communes in rural areas, not the poorest, poorest areas. But I went to Tibet in 1981, including through rural areas, again, in the tourism where clearly poverty rates were high. I mean, there were a lot of poor people. But at the same time, China was, incredibly impressive already there you could see you you even the tourist organization the fact that they could meet us when we arrived crossing the train from uh, Hong Kong to what then from Kowloon to what then became Shenzhen later but that was not even a dream in anybody's minds at that time um, Someone met us there and said, here's your itinerary. We're going to fly to uh, Xi'an, and then we're going to take the train to Lanzhou, and we're, then we're going to come back and go to Baotou and in Inner Mongolia. And everywhere we arrived, someone met us and took us to the hotel, the local guides, and it was incredibly... There were, there were, in, there was a government administration, there was a bureaucracy in place that uh, was an 
extremely important condition for everything that was going to come after that. So poverty, but at the same time, it was already a very impressive country in, in many ways that, believe me, I did a little tourism work in Africa and other countries and too. You did not have the same experience traveling in, in other countries whose, on the surface, when you looked just at GDP per capita, were, were at the same point as China. China was far more advanced in some very fundamental ways. So just that tourism infrastructure, that human tourism infrastructure you're talking about, is kind of a manifest manifestation of state capacity then? Correct. Correct. Very interesting. See, I mean, I think that it, it, we should talk about what poverty looked like in China during the Mao years. I mean, we've, we've just begun this conversation, but I think, you know, what's, it's, it's important to point out, you take issue with those who simply look at other countries in 78, say, and, and only compare income poverty instead of looking at, you know, as I think one ought to look at the, these other measures, state capacity, like you just talked about, education uh, or literacy, life expectancy, child mortality, and taking all of this into account and understanding that there isn't sort of a common metric you can squash all that down into and, and say, you know, X units of, of, of infant mortality equals, you know, of course not. But um, could you give us a more realistic picture of where China really was developmentally by late, the late 1970s? Is there a good way to, to talk about it in terms of, you know, how it compared to other countries? Because it's significantly lower in income poverty. It was like the eighth poorest country in the world or something like that, um, right. only measured by income but yeah, very high in terms of literacy, impressively high in terms of, of, of life expectancy. Right. Yes. There's no one metric that, that can be used to compare then. There, later on, the UN developed what they call the Human Development Index, which Amartya Sen helped to design. Uh, and the whole purpose of that was to say income is not the ultimate goal and the income is a tool to use to have a better life, to have the capacity to do more things. So, uh, but income is not the only tool. You need education. You need good health. So they developed this index. Uh, there's no way to compare China's human development index at that time with other countries, but no one was doing those calculations. But I did try in in the paper simply with that chart of showing uh, China development a course along a range of key indicators and comparing with other countries and the results are striking so for example how would you Indonesia at that time had a considerably higher GDP per capita than China more more than double but China's life expectancy, China's secondary school enrollment rates were both much higher than Indonesia's. Countries whose GDP per capita were comparable then, China, as you say, was the eighth poorest country in the world and, and by measured in, by that indicator, uh, were countries whose life expectancy was around 40 and China's was already 66. I mean, these were countries where we're really in terrible shape, which China absolutely was not. So the main point is you do need to look at all of these indicators together. You can't, you can't simply look at income. And that's also due to the fact that Mao, Mao's policies 
more and more during, and especially during the Cultural Revolution years, were almost designed to suppress income. You were supposed to be doing great things out of passion for socialism, for Mao himself, for for the country, not because you wanted to gain materially from it. And the, the result of that, and of several other specific policies, was that rural incomes especially were extremely low. That's right. So when the Chinese Communist Party leadership uses 78 as a baseline, what is it saying about their uh, their posture toward Mao, toward the, sort of the mixed legacy of accomplishment and, and, and disaster of the Mao years? This is, uh, their message about those years is really deeply contradictory right now. There's an internal contradiction. On the one hand, they're trying to paint a, a more positive picture of Mao's years. Uh, they describe it as the years of building the foundation for future development. That can be accurate for parts of what Mao did in, in the ways I describe. Uh, they describe it as a, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a path that took twists and turns along the way, which is a gentle way to refer to the great famine that followed the great leap forward, I suppose. But uh, at the same time, when they say those nice things about it, but they still, when they talk about the great achievements in poverty reduction, they don't say, since 1949, here's what China has done with poverty. They say, since 1978. So right after Mao's death, implicitly, they're being very critical of Mao. They're saying, after, until Mao was gone and until uh, Deng started reform and opening up years, and China was a mind-bogglingly poor country. 97% of the rural population were poor. Right. They are wrestling with the same kind of continuity versus change dilemma that all of us looking at China are. I mean, this is one of the, the big shibboleths for me when I talk to people and ask them uh, about what, what they believe the Chinese Communist Party to be. Is it the party of Mao, or was there a fundamental change after Deng? I mean, because when you look at it, it, when it's so different in not only its foreign policy orientation, not only in its basic uh, economic foundation, but also in its very composition, right? I mean, it's such a different party, and yet at the same time, uh, beyond just the need to hold on to the sort of load-bearing walls of, 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 you know, Mao, you couldn't do a de-Stalinization, right? I mean, it would have brought the building right. down. But beyond that, even, I think there's there's still a lot that they will still uh, hold up, you know, and, and evaluate in a positive light. Right. So, yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Uh, that's very well described. I, but at the same time, we do need to acknowledge you... If you do want to measure poverty alleviation, poverty reduction, starting from 1978, you simply, as a matter of intellectual honesty and as a matter of trying to truly understand what happened and what its lessons are for anyone else, you have to ask the question, well, why were there so many poor people in China in 1978? That's right. And, and that's also relevant because there's some controversy how much credit Deng Xiaoping and the reforms should receive for what was done in reducing poverty when in the first two decades at least a lot of that was simply 
correcting mistakes that Mao had made, was simply abolishing failed policies and letting much more common sense policies like letting farmers grow what they want to grow, let them sell for the best price they can get, let people move from rural areas to urban areas, of course, with some restrictions still in China, very, uh, in order to find better uh, jobs and better income. So, so you've just brought up two topics that I want to get to. Uh, one of them is on the hukou system itself. The other is about this this business of when is a more reasonable baseline for establishment. I mean, at what point are, is it just no longer a matter of just reversing the bad policies uh, that Mao put in place? Uh, you know, that, that very, very low-hanging fruit, if you will. Uh, and because, you know, I think that that comes into play any time you hear somebody say lifted X hundred million people out of poverty, you know, we... That's a problematic thing. But before we get to that, I do want to ask you a little bit more about poverty in the late 1970s. There was a comment from a World Bank economist that came up in a podcast that I taped with Isabella Weber uh, very recently, uh, talking about how, sure, yeah, there was poverty in China, but it wasn't the kind that didn't allow you to sleep in your hotel at night. And implicitly, that he was talking about India or other countries where there was that more just sort of in-your-face poverty. Now, there's there's a lot of critique uh, in your report about the the, uh, the hukou system. I think we can go ahead and get right to that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with that. And I, like, there's no question that like any internal passport system that exists, you know, where that set, sets up a whole class of citizenry that is second class, essentially, um, it, it's it's a grotesque violation of human rights. I think few people would, would d- dispute that. And yet, I've heard a lot of people defend the hukou system as kind of a necessary evil, uh, the kind of thing that prevented truly awful, separating, ulcerous slums from, from forming in Chinese cities the way that they did in, in Kolkata or, or in Lagos. Uh, can you talk about that at all? I mean, uh, the, the, the mixed blessings, or maybe they aren't mixed at all, of the hukou system. I think it would be safe to say that the hukou system did play a positive role for some time in preventing when the, a massive flow and the, and the uh, creation of uh, the shanty towns and t- huge slum areas around Chinese urban areas that might have resulted if there had been no controls in place. Uh, but I also feel it's a policy that is, has been obsolete already for at least 15 or 20 years and there, there's a, a, a at some point you just need to just bite the bullet and abolish it I right. can't, there's simply no justification for it at this point and it, it and specifically from the point of view of poverty there I don't see how well I, I express myself strongly uh, to me it seems quite clear that it's an obstacle to poverty reduction in the future now China still has 500 million rural residents, not hukou, even rural residents, people, and there simply isn't enough to do to earn income in rural areas in China to support that larger population. So urbanization, real urbanization, not just reclassifying areas, not trying to build new cities to... uh, move people to and say, now you were rural, now you're urban, but actually allowing people freedom to 
pursue opportunities where the opportunities actually exist. That has to be a major part of the future poverty reduction agenda in China. And to what extent is that being discussed now? I mean, every few years you hear about serious proposals for for pretty far-reaching hukou reform, and they never seem to really get anywhere. During the last 10 years, during you know this time that Xi Jinping has been in office, uh, has that been something still under discussion? Under discussion, but I see no indication that major reforms are in the works, which is understandable. It's simply as a matter of political economy. Abolition of the hukou system is resisted fiercely by very powerful interest groups. And now I'm not talking about tiny groups of wealthy whatever. I'm talking about the whole urban middle class. I'm talking about urban governments who would have to provide education and healthcare and other services to a lot more people than they do now. They've, they've had it easy under the hukou system. They could attract these people, could benefit from their labor. They could, these are the people who staff the restaurants, who build the roads, who build the buildings in most cases. I mean, but they never had to provide them with education and healthcare and the rest. And believe me, You've had shows discussing the super competitiveness of the Chinese education system in in urban areas where everyone is trying, sending their kids after school to a piano teacher and a physics teacher and a math teacher. They're so concerned with that urban group of urban hukou middle class people. They're not eager to have rural folks, kids coming in and joining the schools and getting a share of the government resources. So it's a tough political economy problem. But from the point of view of justice and human rights, as you described, and from the point of view of reducing reducing poverty sustainably, it, it's, it has to happen. But don't demographic trends right now point toward uh, maybe more urgency of hukou reform or, or make it actually maybe something more palatable, even desirable by, you know, even some of these uh, urban governments. I mean, we had uh, Tsai Yong, the demographer, on the show not mm. too long ago talk about the 2020 census and a lot of the, the demographic changes that are, are, you know, plaguing China in, in many ways. Aren't these making it a desirable thing to bring in more of the rural workforce into, in, into the cities, which is, you know, to fill these jobs and to... Absolutely. Uh, and in, uh, and in another way, too, and that is what China needs now is better educated workers, China, as right. the income rises. And the best way to provide better education for young people in rural areas, for children and adolescents in rural areas, is not only to invest in improving the schools there. That has to be done as well. But it's to allow them to move to cities with their parents who've migrated or and have access to already existing good education systems in the cities now. China doesn't have time to waste because of those demographic problems you've mentioned and because they're trying to build a whole new technology-based economy. You need people who are able to find productive jobs in this new economy and they're not going to get it from the education that's currently being provided in in most rural parts of China, not all, but in most, and the simplest thing: let them migrate. This is what this is the global experience. This, the main reason why people migrate around the world. This has been 
found in many studies, is not simply to find better income, it's to find better education for their kids. This is a global thing. That's why we migrated to the United States. <laughs> so, so, Bill, among people who work on China, as I, I said earlier, you, know, you often hear this phrase, China lifted X hundred million people <laughs> out of poverty, and you see a lot of viral, and you hear a lot of objections to that. And you'll hear figures you know, as high as 850 million, uh, which actually the World Bank used. Um, but many people, and myself included, have tended to avoid the phrase. I, I don't use it in, in that sort of... But most people dislike it because they think it gives too much credit to the party state. They, they often offer in place something that I actually, I confess, I find equally objectionable, um, this, this idea that the state only had to get out of the way. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've actually said something to that effect before, and may God forgive me for spotting such neoliberal nonsense ever. But, um, you know, you, your approach is different. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I really like it. You try to establish sort of the point at which the reversal of bad Maoist policies alone is no longer the major driver of increases in, in rural income, at which point government policy, government poverty alleviation efforts, proactive efforts, coupled with you know broader economic growth, uh, become more important as the drivers. And you are unequivocal about the idea that since 2013, when Xi's push began, this you know you described as no holds barred and top down uh, targeted push to eradicate poverty, that you can use it. You can say. Some 100 million people were lifted out of poverty. Can you talk about how you determined this point at which Maoist policies were no longer the major drag? Uh, and does that point maybe make more sense to you as a better baseline for measuring the success of subsequent poverty alleviation efforts? That's a, a very interesting thought. Yes. I, frankly, the, I tend to see Hu Jintao who people don't talk much about Hu Jintao anymore. I love but the guy, I think, personally. <laughs> yeah, too. Well, I think he, he, he under Hu, and this was a different time from the current one, so it's hard to say this is Hu Jintao personally, or it was real collective leadership, and he was a very low-profile type of leader. Um, but uh, under Hu Jintao, it's clear when you look at the policy changes, it was the party recognized that growth alone was providing a, the vast majority of benefits by then to the urban coastal regions that uh, we've all seen. So even people who haven't been to China have seen pictures of the skylines and, and the, the high-speed rails, uh, high rails and so on. Um, so it's, under Hu Jintao, there was a, a very strong push to redirect some uh, an a larger portion of government resources towards rural development, towards the rural population. So, I mean, until Hu Jintao, rural education, it's, it's, things change so fast in China that you, you can forget these things. Until Hu Jintao, so less than 20 years ago, rural education was still not free. It was supposedly compulsory, but you, but even poor rural households, sometimes they could get some benefits, but they had to pay for education, for elementary school, for primary school education. They were still paying Hu the agriculture tax. They were still paying the agriculture tax. There was no rural medical insurance. There was no uh, rural pension system. There right. was no all, all of these things. All of the 
and again, this goes back to the Dung reforms. I mean, when the commu people's commune system, commune system was torn down uh, under Dung, uh, it also meant that the rural, the institutions that had been tasked with providing public services in rural areas were also gone. And it took a long time to come up with some replacement. And Hu Jintao was the one who saw that need most clearly and paid the most attention to it. It had been acknowledged before that, but he made some big changes under, remember the phrase, the new socialist countryside. Right. That was that was a big deal because uh, at that point, the trend was very much in the opposite direction. Rural areas were falling further and further behind. So that started it. But of course, under Hu Jintao, China joined the WTO. I mean, or just before him, China joined. The impact of joining the WTO uh, was felt under Hu Jintao. That was providing much greater benefits to the coastal urban areas and much fewer benefits to the interior rural areas. And he started to address that. But Xi Jinping then took that to a whole new level. So when Xi Jinping, I give him a lot of credit for this, even though, again, I disagree with some of the claims that have been made. He identified rural development and rural poverty eradication as, as the key criterion that he was going to use to assess whether China had really achieved the Xiaokang, the society goal that he wanted to achieve by 2020. And that was remarkable. Modestly everyone well had, off. <laughs> modestly weren't. But before that, everyone had focused on GDP, 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 and said, well, it has to double and double again and double again. And so on, which, of course, that was always there too. But he said, no, this is for to really achieve Xiaokang, this mod, mod, moderately prosperous society. We also need to look at the poorest ones in the country. And so he launched a campaign, and this was definitely policy-driven, and this was definitely the party lifting people out of poverty because this was, again, they sent work teams into all of these poor villages that had been identified. They assigned for two- to three-year stretches for people from urban areas to go work there and design and implement and monitor uh, these poverty reduction programs in these poor areas. And some people... No, Dibao was actually the smallest piece of it. It was, it was finding them employment. It was mm -hmm. agricultural improvements. It was building more infrastructure. It was, they had this, what they called the five, I call it five prong approach. So, you know, <laughs> and, it, and uh, it included education and infrastructure and uh, environmental compensation, uh, health, and, and, and some social assistance only for the ones who weren't able to support themselves when given the opportunity. So this, this was top-down. This was, this was definitely government lifting people out. Let's go back a little bit before that and, and talk about the era of low-hanging fruit when it was just about reversing Mao's bad policies. At what point do you think that was over? I think you proposed 1986 as the year that you feel like 
all the the easy squeeze uh, was 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 done. Yes, um, it the easiest squeeze was done by then. And absolutely, the growth in rural per capita incomes until 1985 was unbelievable. It was about 16 percent right. per year in real terms after taking out inflation. Poverty used they had a poverty line. They, their first official national poverty line was set in 1985, but they, they were able to go back and look, and poverty was reduced by more than half in those f- first few years, according to the then poverty line. That income inc- increase took place primarily simply by giving farmers the freedom to uh, grow what they wanted and sell it to whom they wanted for the best price they could get within limits. It wasn't a, a, a big bang, as your discussion with Isabella Weber sort of touched on. Um, it wasn't a big bang of, sudden, of just totally abolishing the grain procurement system that existed. The grain procurement to make sure urban people still got it was important. But it gradually they relaxed and they allowed much more freedom. And, and that was reflected in this big surge in rural incomes. But that had stopped by 1986. And at that point, they, the government established their first national poverty alleviation agency, the leading group on poverty alleviation and development. And they started national poverty alleviation programs, which didn't work so well all the time. This was the the big drive in the Chinese economy was still growth, FDI-driven growth and urban-based growth. So it was a challenge, but it, they had they started to grapple with the problem then. I wouldn't say that at that point all the benefits from reversing Maoist policies had already been gained. Mm. Th- that, that continued for some time still, because, but the main benefits, the direct benefits from rural liberalization had pretty much uh, slowed down quite a bit by then. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk about C's campaign, um, this precise targeted poverty alleviation and his you know, eradication of, of extreme income poverty campaign. Um, so before C actually came into office, this leading group that you just described that, that was formed up in, in the uh, mid-1980s uh, had actually raised the poverty threshold to, I think it was 2,300 RMB right. uh, in t- 2010 RMB value, but up. Uh, that at that point it was actually above the absolute poverty line that the World Bank uses. So um, by that time, um, by by the time that C came into office, how many people roughly were in extreme poverty, and just as importantly, where geographically were they? Uh, what was the reason why they were still in poverty? There were about ninety million mm-hmm. poor people at that point under. When, when they raised the line, this was, which was a, which is a good thing to do. Uh, China had grown so much, the understanding of what it meant to be poor was changing uh, uh, along with that growth. So, uh, there were about 90 million people under the new line that was set then, and they were primarily in the western and central regions. There were still some in the east, but they were they were most concentrated in uh, more geographically remote and uh, topologically challenging 
uh, areas like, such as Tibet, such as Yunnan, some of the more remote rural areas, mountainous areas, Xinjiang, Qinghai. But of course, there were, there was quite a bit of poverty still in some of the central provinces as well, such right. as Henan and Shanxi and Shanxi. This is one of the interesting things about the progress that was made after that in reducing poverty. Basically, the the lower the poverty rate got, the smaller the number of remaining poor became, the tougher it was to solve their problems because right. these were the really tough ones. There's one area in Sichuan, Liangshan, yeah. which is the famous. Yeah. Yes, the E, the E minority area, which is famous for being just an, an impossible nut to crack in terms of poverty alleviation. I mean, people were living on mountains and had to travel long distances just to get to anything, a school, a, a clinic, uh, any sort of work. So I, I think, you know, you, you're, you're very fair in your assessment of the successes under, under C. Uh, at the same time, of course, you, you dispute the claims of, of total poverty eradication, and you make that very clear as well, you know, the reasons why, why you dispute that. Uh, the question that, that I have is, is uh, about the durability of poverty alleviation. And this is something that we flicked at earlier when we talked about how they have this sort of static view. Is, is that something that's changing? Are they now recognizing that poverty recidivism and the, the sort of at-risk populations, uh, people who one jolt will send back into poverty, are a real big problem? And what is in, in this next phase now that, that the 2020 goal has ostensibly been met? Uh, are they moving on to next? What, what is next for them? I'm concerned about that problem, and I, I don't think the answer is clear yet. They certainly express concern about it. They certainly uh, they talk about recidivism, that, uh, and there's this phrase which uh, I, fi- I find very interesting, and that is they talk a lot about fantin, these mm-hmm. people falling back into poverty. But that's not the same issue that I'm most concerned with, about. Um, Fanpinism is serious, but again, it, it suggests that you're still talking about a limited group of people, the people who were poor before and that you've now lifted out and you want to make sure they don't fall back in. But in, at the end of the day, eradicating poverty requires universal social protection programs. At the end of the day, the way what eradicating poverty, if it's to be a meaningful, sustainable concept doesn't simply mean that you, at one point in time, you make you have nobody who's poor. If that's all it was, it would be easy. You just give out a lot of money ten minutes earlier, and now there's nobody is poor. I mean, at the end of the day, you need universal social protection systems that work well, that respond quickly. That's a big challenge, but it. That that is the key, and I don't think China's there yet. And I, I, in my paper, I quote the very recent IMF, the most recent IMF Article Four report on on the China's economic situation. And the IMF, were, I was stunned. Actually, they were very outspoken. They called China's social protection systems woefully inadequate right. uh, uh, and the problem is again there there this it's this patchwork of systems you have urban health 
insurance, and then you have medical health insurance. You have unemployment insurance that covers people who work for formal sector businesses. But if you're a migrant worker working in a restaurant or a, or a meituan, you know, food delivery driver, and you, for whatever reason, lose your employment and your income, you're not eligible to, to receive unemployment insurance. There are all the basic pillars including pensions for China's growing number of older people, a lot of whom live in rural areas. The pension system is totally a patchwork. There, There's a good pension system for people who work for formal sector or for the state enterprises or, or offices. And then there's a residence-based system, which has an urban program and a rural program. So all of these things, that, that's the key. If you really want to make it sustainable in the future, the, the only real way to do it is systems like that. So, I mean, that's obviously a, a massive challenge, I think, for any state. But right. China, I mean, seems like it, it at least uh, historically has sort of shown a willingness to, to, to undertake major transformations uh, like that. So um, maybe n- not all hope is lost. I think that's the most compelling part of your report, the, the chapter five, when you, you lay out that next set of poverty challenges that, that, that Beijing ought to be addressing. Uh, and you do, you know, you talk about, um, you know, the gaps in the current social protection system. I would really urge everyone to t- take a good look at this because I think there's some fantastically good ideas that are laid out there. So what is the path forward toward that? What does it look like? Is that something that's fiscally achievable in China today? And and if so, what is preventing, you think, China from moving toward the creation of a more comprehensive system, one that really takes into account all the vulnerable groups that you've identified? I mean, you know, you're talking about migrant workers, uh, gig or platform workers, the elderly, uh, and, and so forth. It seems like no one would read those recommendations and disagree. But I um, like every, every government faces fiscal challenges, right? Right. It's simply a question of how large a priority the, gov- the government is prepared to put on social assistance, social protection, uh, as opposed to infrastructure investment and what they see as productive investments. I, th- I think in some ways there's still sort of an old school socialist mentality, the old school socialist, as opposed to the new socialist agenda that she has presented and which is very compelling. So the old school one was production is good, consumption is not so important, investment is good in infrastructure and investment in in, in building things, space programs and, and uh, Factories, high-tech factories, no, nothing was more pleasing than showing a production line producing some wonderful new thing. And uh, But social protection seems like something that it's, oh, that's sort of a Northern European type uh, thing that uh, uh, encourages laziness and, and, you know, you're providing funds to parasites. That's the old mentality. And I I still see lingering effects of it. She, when he laid out this uh, precise poverty alleviation, precisely targeted poverty alleviation program, he said something which was really striking. He said, the reason why it's important to to be precise 
to target exactly the poor, the only the poor in the most poor areas, and to do it very scientifically is because if you do anything else, it's like using a hand grenade to kill fleas. <laughs> And it's like, so, I mean, that was, that was very clearly rejecting universal social protection as a solution. It was saying, we want to take sort of an engineering type approach. Let's identify the poor and let's, let's engineer a, a solution to their problems and then let's implement and monitor it. But, uh, so I don't know. I, the fiscal, the fiscal capacity is there. If, if the government is prepared to do it. But it might mean uh, less investment in some areas that they tend to be very proud of as well. And but in I'm which they're sure. already over-investing, so I think it's, it's good for everyone. And the debate has changed so much just in the time since she launched this campaign, at least in the West, in the, in the country to which they do look, if they, even if they do sort of look askance at, at Northern European social programs, they're not ignoring what's happening in the United States right now. They can't be. I mean, today I'm reading all sorts of news and, and kind of licking my chops and waiting for my child uh, tax credit payment. You know, I've got two of them. They're still <laughs> under 18. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's just in the last, you know, since the pandemic began, uh, I mean, the amount of money the U.S. government has just sort of paid to me directly, and I'm hardly poor, um, is is just, it's pretty astonishing. I mean, I, I feel like the whole discussion has shifted considerably, and I would be surprised if, if China sort of went along uh, in, in that regard. Yes, I, you, I hope you're right. Uh, it, it's not so clear to me uh, because it's always your your choosing. Do you want which is which is to you the greater risk? The risk that you might be providing some support to people like Kaiser who don't actually need it. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> okay. Or or the risk that you might miss some people right. who, right. who do need it. And if you want to make sure you don't provide any support to the people who don't need it, then you're inevitably going to miss some people who do. That's right. And if you're so uh, it remains to be seen. And it's always, of course, it's, it's not a binary choice, but it's simply a question of how much investment. That IMF Article 4 report also updated a comparison they've made before, and that is they looked at how much China is spending on social services compared to other comparable countries, and it's China's spending is still very low, including social protection and social assistance, compared to other what they call emerging market economies, IMF's talk mm -hmm. for other upper middle income. So it remains to be seen. Right, right. Well, the, the last bit in your, in your report was, you know, uh, it was a little frustrating, I have to say. I mean, because you, you look at what lessons, if any, can be gleaned from China's remarkable you know, poverty reduction achievements, uh, either by developing countries of the global south or even, you know, from developed countries with, with persistent poverty problems. Uh, your report almost makes it sound like just the that given the uniqueness of the CCP's structure and its reach and the myriad other things that, that make China almost sui generis, um, there just aren't that many lessons that can, people can easily draw from the Chinese experience. Is is that a fair characterization? And And... You know, do you think that maybe just talk about your thinking on that question? Yeah, that's that's a, a very 
important question under discussion among development people and within the UN and other organizations and certainly with other governments as well. There are many lessons that can be learned at a micro level. So China has done a lot of experimentation with improving agricultural production in, in, in more difficult areas. China has done an amazing job, and this is truly remarkable, uh, of extending key infrastructure networks, electricity, transportation, internet now, mm-hmm. I mean, to, to even remote rural areas. This is extraordinary, and this is certainly something that other countries can learn from. Uh, it's when people try to go at the more macro level that I, I have problems with the simplistic lessons that can be drawn, like, like oh, the key is China has always been committed to uh, reducing poverty and to rural development, and that's something that other countries should learn from China, and that's not so clear to me. Um, there are times when clearly that was not a priority. Oh, China, the importance of economic growth, that's another one. This is something that Chinese to, to, uh, themselves talk about a lot, the, the importance of growth first. You can't have poverty reduction without without strong growth. Again, it's not clear. I mean, in China, there have been periods when growth was strong, but poverty uh Poverty rates didn't work, didn't fall very much. At the very least, it's not a sufficient condition. It, it, it probably helps, but uh, it, it's not clear. So these big lessons, um, and I'm particularly, frankly, concerned about people trying to draw lessons from Xi's, from this most recent campaign to eradicate poverty, because there are just simply not many countries that are prepared to do what China did or have the capacity or even if they had it would be prepared to you know set a binding target we're going to move 10 million people in five years from poor areas to to some somewhere else I mean that there, how many countries could, can set targets like that and can implement them so and this, you know, the massive mobilization of human resources and financial resources. I mean, not many countries really would be prepared to to do something like that. So the lessons from the most recent campaign are probably the toughest ones to draw at the macro level. At the micro level, there's been tremendously valuable experience that's been accrued. Bill, what's next for you? I'm um, besides, of course, preparing for a cynical podcast with me about Mongolia. <laughs> well, what's next for me is turning that paper into a book. Aha! Fantastic. Yes, I tried to cover so much ground in a, in one paper. I was given a pretty limited space to work in, but I wanted to talk about the historical context, and I wanted very much to make clearer the issues about taking 1978 as the base year from which you uh, assess China's miraculous achievements in poverty reduction. And I wanted to talk about Xi's campaign, and I wanted to talk about the future and so on. But basically, each one of those sections could be a a chapter in a book. And I wanted to be a book where I, I do the same thing that I tried very hard to do in this paper, and that is, I like what you say, neither fear nor favor, or 
Yeah, I mean, be balanced, be objective, give credit for the remarkable achievements. At the same time, don't hesitate to to be critical when I, when that seems appropriate. Well, I think you uh, struck just such a balance in this in this report. I think it was uh, really really well done. Thank you. Again, the the report is called Reflections on Poverty Reduction in China, soon to be a major book. <laughs> and uh, it just if if you just Google Bill Bicalis. Poverty, China, you'll find it right away. Uh, we can put a link on the uh, the podcast page just in case. Bill, thank you so much for your time. Um, it was really, really fun to talk to you. Um, let's let's uh, get ready for recommendations. But first, uh, let me offer a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like the work we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network and you want to show your support, please, please subscribe to SubChina Access, our newsletter. Uh, it's how we pay for the show. And if you uh, do value what we do and you want to see us keep going, you need to, to, to pony up. So go to subchina.com slash subscribe, sign up for uh, the monthly or the yearly access newsletter. And uh, lots of great perks come with that subscription, let me tell you. Anyway, on to recommendations. Bill, what you got for us? I have two recommendations. Oh, One is a 10-year-old book, which I stumbled onto and uh, I've, it's a real page turner and it's a book called Destiny of the Republic by a woman named Candace Millard. It's about James Garfield. Oh wow. And it's what it's about his uh, life. It's about his death because he was assassinated. Right. But um, it's it there's so much in it that resonates with what's going on today in the U.S. Uh, you really understand it's good to have a realistic picture of American history if you want to be able to assess what's going on in the U.S. today. And one thing which is fascinating, which I had no idea, is she shows conclusively that it was a crazy guy who shot Garfield but the people who killed him were his doctors. Oh, that really? Joseph Lister was already around then. Lister had proven conclusively in, in Europe that uh, disinfecting before surgery, that the basic procedures to avoid causing infections would save so many lives. He had come to the U.S., he'd presented his findings, he had been laughed at and ignored, kind of the way some people laugh at and ignore some of the basic science about Wear a COVID. mask, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so he had, it, there's, the only reason Garfield died was because his Sepsis. doctors his doctors treated him so badly. I mean, they, it's really quite stunning. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell makes a cameo in it as well. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. My, my second recommendation, having just moved back to the U.S., is for a, a car-sharing company called Turo, uh, T-U-R-O, which solved a huge problem for me when I came back because... I came back with a lot of luggage and I needed to rent a car, but I didn't want to rent a car at the airport and drive to my home in it because that would have had to have been a huge SUV to carry all my luggage. So I, instead, I hunted around for the best rental option in my hometown here. and Which I is where? Tour, 
just outside Princeton, New Jersey. Huh? And I found Turo, which is the Airbnb of car rentals. Uh-huh. So it's a car sharing program. And I found a very nice retired woman who lives 15 minutes away from where I am now who had a car available for a rental at a much lower rate than the big car rental companies charge. I could just pop over to her house by, uh, you know, a, a taxi and used the car for three weeks while I looked for a real car of my own and then returned it to her home after three weeks. The total cost was much less. The convenience of having someone right nearby was fantastic. So, Turo.com. All right. That's a really, really useful recommendation. I, I will almost certainly make use of it next time I'm, I'm traveling anywhere for extended legs. I hate not having a car, and I hate having to rent a car from, yeah. From the, yes. So. Uh, fantastic. I actually have a, a one travel-related recommendation as well. Actually, they're both travel-related. So one is for an audio book that I just enjoyed. I consumed uh, while driving up to New York from North Carolina last week. Uh, and then I kept it. I didn't finish it, and I was just binging it on subways and even just sort of, you know, while puttering around the, my brother's apartment where I'm staying, um, doing stuff. And it was, it was just great. Uh, and I immediately bought the next one in the series. It's called The Ill-Made Night. Uh, it's just this rollicking adventure story. Uh, it's not quite for boys, but, you know, the boy in me loved it. Um, it's... It's it's just about a, an English man at arms who aspires to become a knight, and uh, you know, he's during the time of of the Hundred Years' War. So you know he's at the the Battle of Poitiers, you know, with the Black Prince, and uh, it's all just sort of you know all the important events of the mid fourteenth century. It's just really fascinating. If you've read books like A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuckman, it's you know it's that time, plague and all that stuff. It's just great. The author is Christian Cameron who apparently also writes under the name Miles Cameron. This is a, a recommendation from my fantasy and historical fiction-loving older brother, John, uh, who I saw last week in California. This series is just perfect for a long drive. I highly recommend it. Uh, the next one, which I just started, is called The Long Sword. And uh, I'll drive nice and slowly and wind my way back in, over a couple of days to enjoy this book. Uh, my second recommendation is for the, uh, the September 11th, the 9-11 uh, memorial, which unbelievably I had not actually ever visited before this trip, um, but I went over the weekend with my wife and my children, and it was just so well done. It was appropriate. I kept th- thinking just how marvelously appropriate it was, just from the pools to the actual museum itself. Um, really moving. I mean, just very emotionally moving, uh, I think, for the anyone name. to see. Just the names. Oh my God! Yeah, the names. And so yeah, I, I, my my the, the yeah the, the kid who lived right behind my house when I was growing up, Derek Stetkavikus. He uh, worked for um, for Cantor Fitzgerald and and died, and uh, I went and found his name and everything. But yeah, the names. Oh my God! I, I think it was really brilliant, also not to put them in alphabetical order, um, so that you you kind of are impacted by walking around and looking through all the names to find the name you're looking looking for. It was just, it's, it's, it's genius. Uh, I mean, along with the Museum of African American History in Washington, which we visited just a couple of years ago, I, I am just really blown away by how well this country does these, these masterful 
uh, and appropriate commemorations of things, these, these really great museum experiences. I, I've never seen anything quite like it. These two museums are right up there, but I'm, I'm so blown away by the September 11th museum. It was very, very, very good. And uh, yeah, we will, on that somber note, Bill, what a pleasure. What a pleasure it was to talk to you and uh, really glad I got a chance to, uh, to, to, to do this with you. Thank you, Kaiser. It was a great pleasure for me too. And uh, I hope it was of, of interest and will be of interest. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye.